Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about creative people, making things up and making things happen. Uh, today my guest is A. Ashley Hoff. He is the author of the new book, Match Game 101. It's 499 pages all about the Match Game TV show. Um, it is a deep dive, to say the least. And as a fan of the show, and you know, I did the mismatch game thing at the village we've been doing for years, I was really excited to talk to Ashley. Before we get to the interview, I want to mention LifeCast. It's my service where I interview people about their lives. Sort of like an audio heirloom. Uh, this coming weekend, I'm going to San Francisco to interview a friend's mother all about her life, and then all of the adult children are going to be able to enjoy it for the holidays and for many years after. So if that sounds like something you or someone you love uh, would benefit from, go to getalifecast.com and find out about it. Um, normally I do them close to Los Angeles, but I'm happy to travel if we can make it work. And um, in fact, I actually really enjoy getting to go to different places and talk to people about their lives. So again, that's at getalifecast.com. And now, without any further plugs, here is the interview with A. Ashley Hoff. Again, the book is called Match Game 101. Hey there, I'm coming to you from my own living room, where I'm with my dog Enzo, my other dog Gretel, and our cat Nelson, and our guest today who's putting up with the animals, thank you very much, A. Ashley Hoff, the author of the new book, Match Game 101. Hi. Hello, hello. This feels like quite a long journey that we are sitting here. I, I think I initially interviewed you in 2004. Crazy, right? Or 2005. Yeah, it was um, when we just started doing the mismatch game as a benefit at the center. And I think the first one was in 2004, so it would have been right around then. Right. Well, it was. I know it was after the fact because when I uh, went to lunch with Marsha Wallace, I, I became friends with Marsha. I talked with her many times, but we spent one afternoon, a long afternoon, at the Mustache Cafe on Melrose, and I asked her specifically about having done Dennis Hensley's mismatch game at the Renberg Center. This was when it was... That was brand new then, yeah. The first or second one. And I got her thoughts on the whole thing. At that time, it was kind of a one-shot deal. Yeah. Or maybe it would be brought back. Until right. we are 15 years 15 later. years later. And your book is out. And How long have you been out. working on this book? I... <laughs> 200 years. Um, I wrote it largely between 2002 and 2005. My then literary agent shopped it around and it had a number of close calls uh, right. with major New York publishers and ultimately didn't get picked up only because at that point there was no current running version of the show. And they felt like that was needed. Yeah. Well, the thing was they, and I get it, major New York publishing houses have to sell 50,000 copies as opposed to 5,000 copies. Right. So they were just worried that game show fans don't buy books. Right. But of course, they're Mismatch, really match worried about game yeah. show books. Right. There you go. So what what finally tipped somebody over into saying yes? The new version with Alec Baldwin? Um, essentially, it was the new version with Alec Baldwin on ABC that revived interest in the book. And I updated and expanded it. And I got some additional photographs and proof sheets from Lynn Rayburn, Jean Rayburn's daughter fresh from Jean's estate, and, uh, you know, I was able to put it together to really what I wanted it to be. And I was pleased with the outcome because with the case laminated cover and the title Match Game 101, and then at the end of each chapter, there's a tongue-in-cheek 
Servir. There's a little quiz. Yeah, I love that. I was I like, wanted, oh, did I absorb what I needed to absorb from this chapter? Exactly. It's fun. I wanted it to harken back to a textbook. Yeah. And I wanted people to actually learn something from it. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. it. Um, I can't wait to go down and talk about all the different characters in this, but I love that it's called Match Game 101 as though there would be another, like a 201, (laughs) because you cover everything. I can't imagine what the second... It's a very uh, intensive 101 course, is it, my point. It is. It's well, more than a semester. It's it's a 499-page book, <laughs> and, and people were like... 500 pages for yes. a match game, for a yes. game show. Yes. And, you know, there were multiple versions of the show. Right. And well, there you, were foreign you, versions. You go into the foreign versions, you go into the earlier one before the 70s, and you, you really, it is very comprehensive. It, well, I wanted it to be, mainly because I wanted people, because when I started the book, I really didn't know what I was getting into. I thought, right. oh, well, somebody should write a book about the TV show. Um, it essentially began when a friend and I, uh, my friend John Schultz, and I were sitting on a couch watching a rerun of Match Game on Game Show Network. Right. And I turned to him and I said, did anybody ever write a book on Match Game? Because they wrote books. There right. are a million Lucy books, a million Mayberry books. You never see anything on game shows. Right. And neither one of us could think of anything, but by happenstance, he worked with Kay Henley, who worked as celebrity coordinator on the show in the 70s. Okay. And I basically said to Kay, you should write a book about your years working on the show because I would buy it. Right. And she ultimately said, no, I don't really want to write a book, but if you want to write a book, I'll gladly talk to you for it. Nice. And I thought, well, somebody should do it. So I just sort of stumbled into it and thought, well, we'll see how far I get. And then a month later for my birthday, a friend, my friend John, took me to go see uh, Charles Nelson Riley perform his one-man show at the Cannon Theater in Beverly Hills. I saw it, too. It's incredible. It was amazing. And Charles was exactly what you saw on the Match Game set. Right. Um, I think one of the things that makes Match Game in particular, and game shows in general, so popular is because... They're not scripted, so as a result, what you are seeing these people like, their bickering and their bantering and their responses to what they're doing and their intelligence, that's what they're really like. You can't right. fake that. Right. You know, so I think that's one of the appeals. Who were your first interviews that you got? Uh, well, really, the first interview, aside from Kay, who then put me in touch with Ira Scotch. Who was um, a big producer. Like, he, he was one of the main... Yeah. Kind of day-to-day running the show kind of guy. He had directed the show in the 60s right. version of Match Game, and then he produced and was the judge on the 70s. So whenever, you know, anybody, you know, took umbrage to the fact yeah. that the judge was disagreeing with their answer, that was Iron. That He was the guy. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Peter Marshall was the first real formal interview I had. And Peter had been an old friend of Gene Rayburn's. Right. They were NBC pages together. And he uh, had actually appeared on the 60s version of the show. And, of course, he hosted... Hollywood Squares. Classic. Right. Hollywood Squares. And so we talked a lot about all that stuff. And he ended up, because he had just come out with his own memoir... Right. ...hosting the show, um, he invited me to a special taping of Hollywood Squares that was then hosted by Tom Bergeron. He was going to be the center square... And it was a game show themed week. Uh, 
Brett Summers. They were all there. They were going to be there in the bottom square. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. They were all right there in front of you. Exactly. Well, what was funny was Peter had told me, he invited me backstage to his dressing room after the taping. And so walk in, there were Brett and Charles sitting on the couch. And Charles, I had already met by that point. Peter introduced me to Brett, who was lovely. And right around the corner, in comes Marsha Wallace. Right. It was her 60th birthday, and they were all going out to dinner afterwards. She didn't appear on the show. But I immediately told her, you know, who I was, what I was writing, all that stuff. She gave me her business card, and we talked and struck up a friendship. And she put me on her Christmas card list, and, you know, I saw her many times after that. She was a lot of fun. And, uh... And from there, I just met more and more people. I wrote the book largely before Facebook was a thing. Right. Before it even existed, I think. And so I had to track people down using the white pages, uh, calling up the agencies, calling up, you know, their managers and publicists and track them down through the unions. Right. So I I learned how to be a great stalker. You were a real detective. I was. Who was the hardest to get that you finally got? Well, it was funny because for the longest time I was trying to track down Scoey Mitchell. Yeah. I really wanted to talk to Scoey. African-American comedian. He was great. He would show up on Match Game every now and then. And he, you know, there would always be some racially tinged question. Right. this was the era. And he was the perfect foil for that and had a great attitude about right. it. And I really wanted to talk to Scoey. And I could not find him for the life of me. Where is Scoey Mitchell? And I was talking with Kay Henley one day. And I said, you know, the one person I really want to find is Scoey Mitchell. And she said, oh, I've got his phone number right here. And I just thought, wow, two and a half years, three years of searching. (laughs) And you just, if you just asked... And he was and he was great. We ended up talking about all sorts of things. We talked about the kind of subversive quality that game shows were able to bring into people's right. living rooms. As long as you didn't say the thing, literally, as long as you didn't use bad words, you can you could imply a lot. Oh yeah. Oh that yeah. was that show's bread and butter with that. Gene Rayburn. Dead or he was was he when did he die? He ninety seven. He had already passed. Right. So you you were yeah. You never got to talk to him. No. What was his I story? I talked to his daughter, but not him personally. What was his story? What was his background? What was he like? He well, he was born in uh, Christopher, Illinois, and raised largely in Chicago. Right. Um, his his father had died when he was very very young. He had a couple of older brothers. They were immigrants. Essentially, you know, fresh off the boat, as they say. His mother was very sweet and very nurturing and a good, supportive mother. Um, But they were broke, you know. She ended up marrying another man later on. And uh, Gene kind of adopted him as... He was kind of adopted as a stepfather and was very close to him. Gene was a very family-oriented man. He was very traditional in that sense. But well-liked. Very well-liked. He was in the war. He was in what at that time was kind of the precursor to the Air Force. It was still kind of like the Army Air Force at that point. And served during the war, to his credit. Happy Veterans Day, There you go. That's what we're doing for Veterans Day, talking about Gene Rayburn. Exactly. And in, you know, he he served his country very well. Um, He worked in radio while he was in the Army. And then when he got out, he had done some radio stuff beforehand, I think. But afterward, uh, he ended up basically being one of the first 
morning talk show radio DJs, um, he and his partner D. Finch had kind of helped shape and master what we know today as the morning like talk your Today show, show kind of vibe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Did he like doing the match game? Did he love it? Oh, he loved it. He loved yeah. it. He had worked in live radio and then later live television, and he had honed his skills doing all the improvisation that right. came out of that. So that when match game happened and, you know, the machinery wouldn't work or the celebrities would pull some antic stunts or yeah. whatever, he was able to just go with he it. He could really roll with it. He I think he was sort of, I think he's, now that we're talking about him, I feel like he's underappreciated. Because he let that be, he could go with everything, and he made it all okay. Well, and he made if it, it was a contestant effortless. being an idiot or a <laughs> panelist being crazy, like you know. Exactly. But he got the joke. He wasn't sort of like the school teacher being like, "You behave." Like exactly. he was having fun too. He could rein them yeah. in, but he could also do it with a soft, light, funny touch. The microphone was iconic. It was. What did you learn about the microphone? Is there, the, there's probably two chapters on the microphone that it, I haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> It's, well, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it is the Sony ECM-51 Of course model. it is. Um, same model that Bob Barker had, only Bob, you know, kept his in check. But no, Gene decided to extend his. Right. Why is the same microphone and yet Gene made it a thing? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was his scepter. Right. It was. I love it. And also, I also remember when Donnie and Marie got cordless mics and that was very exciting. It was like, there's no cords on those mics. That was amazing. <laughs> Did you, what did you learn about writing the questions? Because I every time we do mismatch game, I have to write a bunch of questions. Right. Um, and I love in your book, you actually see the cards with the questions typed on them. I got those from Dick D. Bartolo, who wrote who wrote solely and exclusively the questions that appeared in the '60s version of Match Game, and then in the '70s he started the process, but was later helped. They got a staff of additional writers. Dick continued, nonetheless. Right. Um, Elliot Feldman, R. Patrick Neary, and they, I was able to interview them all, and they told me, you know, great stories about how they fell into this fabulous position of writing comedy questions for Match Game. Yeah. But they also talked about the, there's a real process that you really don't appreciate. Um, the wording is such that, you know, whatever the word in the blank is, is it going to be a plural word? Is it going to be a singular word? Right. No, yeah, you have to think about that stuff. Yeah, and and you couldn't come up with a, a question that leads to just a single answer. There had to be multiple ones, right. but it couldn't be so vague that nobody was going to match. Right. You have to focus it enough that there's something to go on without making it so obvious that there's no variety to it. Exactly. I'm surprised at how many questions in the book don't have the blank at the end because i found that for the jokes to land it really helps if that blank is the last word mm -hmm. but they did a mixture they did they did the different writers had different styles and somebody's pulling over in their car right now going dennis you're really getting into the weeds with this <laughs> stuff but you're the person to talk to you wrote but the see, textbook this is the thing when when people get you know when they get bogged down with all this esoteric stuff. Yeah. Because I talk about the bells and the whistles and right. how the hell the set was designed and all yeah. this stuff. If you don't like that, that's perfectly fine. You turn to the chapter that talks about Brett because she'll just go on yeah. and on and on. Or you go to, you know, the section about Betty White. Right. Or you go to the Brett and Betty White feud. Right. Which I've read in your book was just for fun. It just really was. Show. It really was. Yeah. They were, they were friends. Um, they were comrades. And it was all played up for the cameras. Yeah. 
Richard Dawson, dick or not a dick? Oh, poor Richard. Because he reads a little like a dick. He, well, he, he had a little bit of a sharp edge. Yeah. But you know what? I will say this. Everybody that I talked to for the book was very complimentary towards Richard, even when they indicated that they were not necessarily each other's cup of tea. They would speak highly of him. Brett was someone who did not hold back opinions. But when I asked about Richard, she said, well, you know, we weren't, you know, the best of friends, but he was a great game player. He really cared about those contestants getting money. Right. And he was great in the super match. And she was the first person to say that. Well, and also, but he resented it if people didn't pick him in the super match. He came to know that that was his... It sort of was like, well, wait, I, every, you're supposed to pick me. That's what everyone does. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. But when he also got Family Feud, then things sort of changed, too, because he kind of became a star in his own right, in a way. Did that well, change really the dynamic did. on Match Game? It, it really did. Because everybody pretty much agreed Richard actually was the star of Match Game. Everybody loved Brett and Charles, but even they recognized the fact that, you know, we're sitting back here, we're like Statler and Waldorf, we're bickering and right, right, right. we're comedic, but Richard's the really, the one He's that, the Zen master of matching. He's the intelligent one. Supposedly, right, okay. Um, and so, you know, once Richard's star started to rise on Family Feud, and he was still contracted to do match game being one of six right. instead of an individual that graded on his nerves yeah. understandably all right fair enough and he'd been doing it for six years he right was, he was tired of the format you write about the kissing on family feud you write about everything i want to know about you really left no stone unturned what about the kissing because nowadays it's so gross it was a different era. Right. It was a different era. I mean, initially, Richard had actually said this in an early interview, sadly not with me. Um, For those of you wondering what we're talking about, on the old family feud, Richard Dawson would go down the line and kiss every female contestant on the lips. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was very controversial at the time. It was time. like, get a room. He, w- he was kissing married women. Yeah. He was kissing young women. He was yeah. kissing old grandmothers. He would kiss everyone with a vagina. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. And he had said there was a woman early on on the show who was very nervous. And right. so he he essentially, you know, kind of took her hand and was just trying to comfort her and calm her down because, you know, it can be a very nervous right. making place. You've got the lights and you've got this sound and you're in front of the audience. So he was trying to do it to calm her down. And it just became a thing from there. Right. Like Ellen dancing. Exactly. She didn't want to dance every show, but it just you know, became her thing. She might have had a bum foot that day. <laughs> exactly. So, you know. Now, I read in your book also, is, did I get this right? He ended up having a child with a former contestant. On, on Family Feud. On Family Feud. Yes. But somebody that he kissed. Yes. Next thing you know, love child. Exactly. And then they get married. Exactly. Well, I don't know if the child came first or the marriage came right. first, but let's just say love blossoms. Love blossoms. That's I, crazy. I did, however, ask a couple of people, though, on the match game set, um, anybody ever get lucky? I asked Brad. I oh, asked sure. a number of them. And Brad was very funny about it. She said, oh, oh, I never thought about that. Oh, well, I know I never did, but huh. I never thought about it. And, you know, because they would always park the stud of the week, like Anson Williams or right. somebody next to her. I did ask Brett who, out of all those studs parked next to her, 
you know, ranging from Richard Deacon and David Doyle to, you know, Potsy. Sure. You know, who would you have run your, up your, to? Your bouncer, Braverman. Who was it from Oh, Bart Braverman, yes. Who was Sean Anna? No, uh, Bowman. Uh, John Bowser Bowman. I feel John, like he might have been in that scene. He might have. He was in that scene. Yeah. And, you know, I asked her. Your Gary Berghoffs? <laughs> would you have run off to Tahiti with anybody? And she, it was interesting. She told me Dick Martin. Interesting. She, and the way she said it, I could tell she had a big crush on Dick Martin. Nice. And and I could tell, like, she kind of really waxed lyrical about him. Nice. And and she absolutely adored Dolly Reed Martin. And I love Dolly, who was yeah. wonderful. I was able to talk to all of them. Um, so I totally get it. I can see what Brett's, Brett's tastes were. She liked the yeah. funny men. Marsha Wallace told me... That you could always tell a morning show from an afternoon show when you watched it because they would drink at lunch. Yes. Now, is this true? It is true. It is true. Deborah Lee Scott told me, you know, flat out, whatever you see us with those styrofoam cups, not coffee. Yeah. Um, but they, it has been played up, especially with the new version. Like when the new version hosted by Alec Baldwin came out. All the articles on Match Game were all about, they got a bar backstage, and they're getting, you know, Jack McBrayer and, you know, everybody who's on the show good and liquored up before they put them on the set. And I think that's been played up a little too much. Yeah. Because, yes, they had a little wine, or they'd have a cocktail at lunch, and yes, sometimes they would carry it onto the set, but they weren't swigging, I mean, you would have noticed, Right. They weren't swigging throughout the show. It was the 70s. You know, you were supposed to have that kind of party. They had a buzz on, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You had that kind of Playboy Club sensibility. And Foster Brooks would come on and do his drunk routine. Yeah. But the thing was, nobody was going to risk their career by being seen really drunk on on a TV show. Right. Now, Betty White was on there a lot. And you always hear tension about Betty White on the Golden Girls set, Mm -hmm. involving her and other people. What was her uh, deal on the Match Game set? Did everyone like her? Was she cool? Everybody seemed to get along very nicely. Deborah Lee Scott talked about her, and I don't know how often they did the show together, but they knew each other certainly socially and through other, you know, means. Everybody really, for the most part, got along. And you interviewed Betty. And I did interview Betty. In and, person or on the phone? Uh, on the phone, but then afterward we met yeah. a number of times. Nice. And she was always, uh, you know, whenever I reminded her who I was, she knew exactly, she remembered exactly, and so she's yeah. been fabulous. Um, everybody spoke glowingly about the show. There really weren't a lot of dirty feuds and stories and whatever. It was a happy set. It was a happy show. And I think that speaks very highly of what we're Well, I think that's what came across while we're we're talking. Because it looked like they were having fun. Yeah. It made made being an adult look like a lot of fun. Oh, I know. Exactly. Uh, You talk about Slide It Earl. Now, at the end of the super match, Gene Rayburn would say Slide It Earl to reveal the answer. What's the story with Earl? Okay. Earl Wilson was a stagehand working on the CBS set. Uh, he worked on a number of the Goodson Todman productions. A number of the the stagehands and crew would be rotating right, the different sure. shows. You know, whatever day they'd be taping Price is Right, whatever day they would be taping Match Game, you know. And so they were regulars, and so everybody liked each other and knew each other well. Earl... Gene was very good at, first of all, giving a little shout-out to the people behind the scenes, 
that nobody ever. Right. In other words, it was a way of sort of being magnanimous and kind of like, there's a lot of people that are involved in the show and let's give them a little bit of a glory. And it became a thing. It did. That's nice. It did. That's nice. Errol must have appreciated it. You dedicate your book or do a thank you to Jacqueline Suzanne. Oh, Jacqueline Suzanne is my literary patron saint. You just love her. I, I love Valley her. Of the I dolls. love Valley of the Dolls. And Once Is Not Enough. Yeah. And all of that stuff. I actually have a Robert Suzanne painting. Uh, her father was a famous portrait nice. painter in Philadelphia. But she kind of is my inspiration because, I guess in a way... She, you know, her writing career was an uphill battle. I mean, right. you can you can watch the Michelle Lee made for TV right. biopic. She was sort of like barnstorming her own book around, wasn't she? She really was. Yeah. And a lot of it was because she, you know, felt like a loser because her her career as an actress was never quite what she wanted it to be. And so finally she faced all these adversities. Her her son was autistic and institutionalized. Um, her marriage was kind of on the rocks at the time. Her career was going nowhere. And she just got a cancer diagnosis for breast cancer. And she thought to herself, damn it, I want to do something before I kick off. <laughs> I mean, for heaven's sake. So she wrote this book and she poured her heart and soul into it. And it, of course, became this great bestseller. And, and she went on to live. And she went on to live yeah. for another dozen years. But it was something she also helped kind of revolutionize the way books were marketed. Yeah. And so, as a result, she's kind of my inspiration whenever I feel down on myself and the fact that it, this book... Took 150 years. Match Game 101 took, like, 17 years to see the light of day, which is really too long to be sitting on a book. But at the same time, here it is, and I'm proud of it. You should be. It's fantastic. There's a photo that you sent me. I don't know if it's in the book or not, of you with Charles... But he's yes. kind of got you in this big hug. <laughs> it's very sweet. That picture makes me makes me um, it moves me. It it is. What's the story of the picture? Okay, um, my birthday, May twenty first of two thousand two. Uh, my friend John took me to see Charles perform his one man show. What was very interesting after the show, you know, I wanted to be a stage door Johnny, you know, get him to sign my program, right. his autograph, that sort of thing. But also, I wanted to hit him up for match game questions. Um, so I was expecting, you know, after the show, he might come out the stage door or whatever. I asked one of the stage managers, I would like to see Mr. Riley, uh, if he is free. You know, I was being very, you know, respectful and all of that. And basically, there were a handful of us who stuck around, and the stagehand said, wait a few minutes and Mr. Riley will be with you. So we waited, we killed time, and uh, afterward he came out, and he, rather than bringing Charles out to us, he escorted us all backstage and downstairs to Charles's dressing room. Charles opened up his dressing room, served us all drinks, and invited everybody to sit around and have conversation, an hour and a half's worth of conversation. And it was like something out of All About Eve without all the spite and bile. Right. And it was... It was wonderful, and Charles was gracious and lovely, and um, he invited me to see the show a second time, which I did a few days later. That was when that photo was taken. Wow, all right. And, you know, I, I told him about my plans for the book, and he graciously passed his phone number on to me. 
And it was just something where I got to spend time with Charles Nelson Riley, who told the best stories, mm-hmm. and was just, again, everything you saw on the Match Game panel, that was what he was like. Same with Brett. All these people, it was wonderful. Uh, Brett, I flew to New York twice to see when she did her one-woman show, and ended up hanging out with Marsha Wallace and Jack Klugman, who both saw the show that night. Wow. And so afterwards, we all, you know, they posed for photos because they're the celebrities. But I took a picture of Marsha and Brett together, and that I used in the book as well. I took a couple of other photos of the group with Jack, and and everybody was just lovely. Did anyone talk about Charles's uh, sexual orientation? The, 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 was it ever a? Th- was it just sort of this unwritten thing that's in the, that everyone knew? And it was hinted at on the show. Charles really was kind of as open about right. it as you were going to get in 1970s television. It was referenced in a few questions and answers, right. and a few jokes were made, and people either got them or they didn't. But. Um, one of the things that my friend Alonzo Duraldi had pointed out back in a 2001 Advocate magazine article, a profile of Charles, he basically said something to the effect that um, Charles was his own sort of marching pride parade. And he quoted Charles as saying, people like Ruby D and Ossie Davis are the first ones to march in a picket line, but I'm more like Marian Anderson, who was this gorgeous black singer whose real form of protest was simply being this beautiful, elegant black woman in a long gown and pearl necklace and just simply performing and showing her art and expertise. Right. It didn't seem like anyone was uptight around it or he was uptight about it. It didn't have that tension that, oh my gosh, somebody's going to call me out. Like, it didn't have that thing. Uh, I find that really interesting. I'm also amazed at the the friendship between him and Burt Reynolds. Like, they were super tight. They were best friends. They just don't seem... That seems like an odd couple to me. <laughs> What's that about? It is. Well, obviously, Burt was secure enough in his own masculinity that he didn't have a problem with gay people because right. he was close friends with people like Dom DeLuise and Charles and others. And certainly, if you're working in show business, you really shouldn't be homophobic because who is lighting the lights? Who right. is doing the set design? And I'm not... Trying to be, you know, only the gays do that. Um, plenty of gay stagehands and crew members out there. But Charles and Burt just seem like they'd be interested in different things. Or, you know, it doesn't seem like it's a... I guess they were both into theater. Because mm-hmm. he had that theater down in Jupiter, Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think and they... He, and he valued Charles. He invited Charles to come down and be the regular teacher at the Jupiter Theater down there, nice. as well as direct plenty of shows. And later, of course, when uh, Bert produced and starred in his own series, Evening Shade, he had Charles do the most of the directing of the episodes. And whenever Bert produced the TV game show, what was the one he did? Picture, no, picture, it was like Picture. Win, Loser, Draw? I forget what one it was. Yeah. It was the one where it was designed to look like Bert's living room set. Right, okay. And and Charles was always on the show. He yeah. was always involved with everything that Bert was doing. And, of course, he appeared in the Cannonball Run films and all that stuff. Yeah. So they were very, very close. And Bert was, to his credit, very loyal to his friends. Yeah, I love that. Um, your book has so many great photos. And, like, you have the set design sketch from above. <laughs> like... It's pretty, pretty oh, uh, to thorough. illustrate the camera placement. Yes, for the so, cameras, in case any of us 
really it, re- it, need to recreate that. You know, because there are people who are curious about how the hell do you direct a game show? Yeah. Well, I've got, you know, Mark Breslow, who was the show's director, explaining all that kind of stuff in graphic detail yeah. and again showing the camera placement. And again, if that's too technical it's for anybody. It's fun to look at. It's fun to look at the cards. It's just fun to see the stuff. Well, you always wanted to see what was backstage. Yeah, what it was like. You know, just kind of know a little bit what how the magic yeah. works. Um, what's your favorite picture in the book? My favorite photograph? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. I think it's the one on the cover. It's There were people who kind of complained, oh, well, I don't know about that cover photo because Orson Bean is in there and he was only occasionally on the show. But I thought it really captured the show. There were a couple of photos I was looking at for the cover art um, where Gene was very prominent. And, of course... You know, he obviously was the MC of the show, but he wasn't the only person, and I wasn't writing a full-length biography on Gene. Right. Adam Needif did that a few years ago, a very good book that's a full-length biography on Gene Rayburn. But mine is about the game overall, and Gene was simply one of the major elements that made it come together. And I like the fact that it showed the game itself. Charles is, you know, showing his card and that sort of thing. And so I like that. It was kind of an action shot. Yeah. Um, Mark Goodson, Bill Todman, the producers. As kids, we've heard those names over and over and over mm-hmm. again. But just give us a little sketch of what their personalities were like. Was well, one like the good cop and one was the bad <laughs> cop? Or how? what were they like? They they would often play that with the, right. uh, with the, the employees. Yeah. Well, whenever anybody asked for a raise, Bill Todman was the, the one who would shoot them down. Yeah. You know, because he was the bookkeeper. He was the brains behind everything. Right. Mark Goodson, however, was the creative one. I see. He didn't like confrontation, so that's why he left, you know, the dirty yeah. work to Bill Todman. But he was the creative one who saw the potential in all these game ideas. And when some of the Goodson Todman staff members would come to him and say, hey, we have this great idea for a game. They would lay it out and explain it to him, and Mark Goodson would sit there, take it in, and he would then go point by point, what are the selling points, what are the pros, what are the cons? But he had been in the business long enough that he knew what are the flaws, what well, how, Would it find. work or not? Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, I also uh, love that they made the stars come in and play the game before they put them on the show. Yeah, well, there are lots that of feels, people... Um, that feels like they wouldn't do that nowadays. There are they wouldn't make Deborah Messing come in and see if you could play match game. Well, that's kind of the problem. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, and this isn't anything against Deborah Messing or anybody else who's on the current Right, you can't imagine a game show saying to a celebrity, come in and let's make sure you can do this. Right, right. Well, that was one of the things... Uh, when Welcome Back Cotter was so big... I love this story, too. They had a bunch of the kids, quote-unquote... The Sweat Hogs. The Sweat Hogs come in, and, uh, you know, Bobby Hedges was great at the game, so was Ron Palillo. Yeah. But uh, John Travolta came in, and he just wasn't really that good. According... I'm reading between the lines, but he was kind of a dick. He was... He, well, he he pretty much was. He was a dick. That, yeah. that was pretty much told to me explicitly. Yeah. Um, and the thing was, even though he he would have brought so much star wattage to that panel, yeah. but he just wasn't game show material, so he never appeared on Match Game. It wasn't happening. He did try... He went in and played, though. He went, went in and played. The office. To his credit. Yeah. yeah. What is it about that show that you love? Oh, God. Well, you know... I mean, I guess it, it really was this fantasy idea of what being an adult is. Brett Summers, when uh, 
Jack Klugman, to whom she was married, was doing the first year of The Odd Couple. They shot it in New York, and then they came out to California to shoot it for the rest of the run. And Jack basically said to Brett, okay, we're about to move out there. What do you want to do? And she just said, you know, I just want some situation where I get booked on something where all I have to do is sit around and have a drink, and it's like we're in our living room, and we just play games and talk and have fun. And he just looked at her and said, well, good luck, dear. And that was exactly what happened. That's what she got. That's exactly what she she got. Did the celebrities resent that they were known as game show people as opposed to Charles, who's a great director and an actor? Did How, how did they manage that uh, give and take? Charles Charles had an issue with it. Yeah. And and a lot of times he did feel like he was typecast. But he was, he'd was he also done so much work. Like, he really had. He, he's just It's justified, I think, in a way. One of the things that I point out, Alec Baldwin years ago had played Charles Nelson Riley, uh, you know, with the funny glasses and the ascot on a, a skit of uh, Saturday Night Live where they were parodying James Lipton's The Actors yeah. Studio. Uh, and basically, you know, taking Charles very seriously because he's had this lofty career. And of course, all he's talking about is game shows. Right. The irony being that Charles actually has written librettos for opera, has actually won... Tony's been nominated for Emmys. He's this renowned, respected figure. But of course, what do people know him from? Match Game. Yeah. Or Lidsville. Or Lidsville. Or Lidsville. He's so Sid weird Martin on that show. So up. that's so creepy. All of that stuff is so creepy. Yeah, that that was yeah. definitely yeah. <laughs> I feel like nowadays people can do stuff and not get typecast so much. Like oh, yeah. Alec Baldwin's still doing movies, right? Oh yeah. 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 He'll do film, TV, host a game show. Yeah, it seems like people are less uptight about those boundaries than they used to be. Exactly. Um, Fanny Flag and the t-shirts. Yes. Fanny's favorite was, of course, the one with the fried eggs. That's everybody's favorite t-shirt. Did she just wear it once, or did it make recurring She, I know she wore it once. She might have worn it a few times. She was always getting sent... Once she started wearing t-shirts, fans would send her t-shirts. So she would just wear them and give a shout-out to the fan. Yeah. And later on, she sold all of them, gave them to charity to auction off to raise money, which I think is a good thing and to her credit um but uh they were certainly eye-catching yeah and, and she had the figure oh she yeah. had the figure for it yeah. yeah yeah i love it and then she went on to become this great novelist you know successful exactly. novelist. well and the thing was she's dyslexic so that's the amazing thing she grew up not being able to spell her own name almost literally and but she wanted to write she was doing comedy writing for candid camera luckily it wasn't the type of writing that you know was dependent upon the text per right. se but she it was her passion and she managed to get through it and god has written how many novels at this yeah, point yeah fried green tomatoes and a bunch more um fanny flag her real name do you know patsy neal well patsy patricia neal patsy neal okay she she of course changed it because that well there was already there, a patricia yeah. neal out there fanny flag is catchier exactly i love that um Here's something I kind of want to see what you think about this idea. You're spending people who were probably older, uh-huh. and how? What did it make you feel about being? What What am I going to be like when I'm at that age? Because they're kind of looking back on their life. Right. A lot of them have passed away since you interviewed them. Mm-hmm. 
did it give you a window into like, oh, he really knows how to live? Or, oh, or, oh they're holding on to stuff that's not worth holding on to. Or like, what did it teach you about being an old person? I think what it really taught me about is that everybody's careers, and I don't care who they are, everybody's careers have ups and downs. And some people have early success. We know plenty of child stars for right. whom that's the case. And then there seems to be, at least the way we perceive it, this long, slow descent into right. you know oblivion. Um, for some people, it's the exact opposite. The Jacqueline Suzanne thing, where you were kind of nothing for a long time, and then all of a sudden, you become this overnight success, and it only took, you know, 20-odd years for that to happen. I think it gave me this philosophical look at people's careers, the way we, as fans, perceive it, but also the way people in the business just kind of view it for what it is. You know, it's their job, it's what they're doing. They're looking forward, they're not looking backward. When they're reminiscing about an old show that they did 30, 40 years ago, you know, to us, it's the high point of what they did. But to them, it's just one pit stop on the journey. And uh, sometimes the memory fails because, you know, after 20 or 30 years, there are certain things you forget. But everybody, almost without fail, had glowing things to say about the show and the people they worked with. And I think what I really got out of that is just recognizing on a philosophical level the ups and downs we all face in life yeah coupled with just an appreciation for the happy times the fun times and really frankly appreciating people's personalities people like orson bean and charles nelson riley and brett summers were really coming of age as actors at a time when actors were bred to be raconteurs and storytellers Nowadays, people go on The Late Show or The Tonight Show, and they're plugging whatever, and they play a little game, and there's, you know, maybe a little bit of banter, but there really isn't great grand it's very storytelling. It's, it's very safe. They're, yeah. the, the segment's got to go well for everybody. And, well, and yeah. sometimes it's also because of, maybe they are actually more verbal than that, but they've, they're just pressed for time because we've got to get one more, you know, commercial shoot into the program. Right. Um... I think it just gave me a greater appreciation for real talent and actors and actresses' personalities. Yeah. So. Who seemed really happy in their life? Oh, gosh. Um, well, one of the people that off the top of my head I'm thinking about, somebody who actually faced a lot of really challenging issues is Joyce Bulafont. Joyce Bulafont. She always played this bubbly person. I would have blonde. felt horrible if we hadn't mentioned Joyce Bulafont in I this interview. I love Joyce. Yeah. She, I talked to her. We had two long marathon conversations yeah. over a two-day period and she was an absolute doll but in her own personal life she has faced marriages to alcoholics and a lot of issues and career you know almost getting there and then failing it falls through the last yeah. minute um read up on joyce to learn more about that how close she came to the brady bunch and all this other stuff and yet she has always projected this bubbly, positive right. persona. And she really is that in life. She's a lovely, buoyant personality. I love that. And again, that gives you kind of this philosophical idea how you can be in your own life. Yeah. You may deal with so much nonsense in your day-to-day -day life, but look how much joy and happiness you can bring to people yeah. if you're just 
nice. What would Joyce Bonafont do mm, in exactly. any given situation? Exactly. Who have you been able to give the book to that's still alive? Um, well, people that I've interviewed. I mean, I was sad that Patty Deutsch and Marsha Wallace, Brett, Deborah Scott, Charles... These people have passed. Iris Scotch has passed. It's so great that you got them, though. Don't, yes. Doesn't that feel good that you got them t- on the record talking about this? Oh, thing? absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, one of the people early on that I talked to was Jean Copelman, who passed away shortly after I talked with her uh, in 2004. Um, she had produced the show in the 60s. So mm-hmm. she was giving me all these stories about the 60s version of Match Game. And she worked with James Dean on Beat the Clock. And all these other people. Her first James big, Dean, the actor. James Dean, the actor. He was a stunt tester on Goodson and Todman's right. Beat the Clock in the mid fifties. So he tried beating the clock before other people would try to beat the clock. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They had all these stunts. I, I have this image of him doing it in a very methody James Deany way of trying to beat the clock. And you know? he was, and that's the way she described it. Yeah, it was, she was very like, intense. Yeah, it was too intense for beat the clock. And so, but she was telling me all the story about telev- early television history. Yeah. Her, her first gig in television was the first season of The Ed Sullivan Show when it was still called The Toast of the Town, and CBS was still transmitting out of Grand Central Station. So I was able to weave a lot of television history into all this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wish I could have presented her with the final copy of the right. book. Um, she at least knew that it was forthcoming. Yeah. You know, I just wish I could have given it to her. Sure. What has been the reaction that you've gotten so far since it's been out? It hasn't been out very long, but I see it like at Book Soup and it's, it's a around. front window at Book Soup. That's huge. It's, it is huge. Um, and it's now at the downtown public library. It's That's in right. the library system, so libraries are starting to get it. Um, I've been getting very positive feedback. People enjoy the book. They enjoy the fact that it does go through all these details and they have kind of learned how to respect a genre that they, like so many people, have just kind of casually dismissed. Well, they're game shows. You know, how hard can they be? What what I think is interesting about it is people think that there's nothing to it, that that it's easy. It's just thrown together. And yet they've tried over and over again to make Match Game happen again and capture that thing that they had in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And... It hasn't always worked. No. Well, I it's think harder to, it's harder to do what they were doing than people think. I think the magic of it, we now recognize in retrospect, is that they made this look effortless and fun so that yeah. we had no clue right. the depth of what was going on to put this, to produce this great game show that, again, we're talking about four decades later. Yeah. How many years was that 70s one on? Uh, 73 to 80. Two and then eighty three. They did the Hollywood Squares Match Game Hour. That was eighty three, eighty four, and that lasted like nine months. Sadly, yeah. It, nice idea, but some ideas are better yeah. left on the drawing room. Sure, you know, you gotta try it. Drawing board. All right, you pick some questions from the observation deck. Yes. Uh, what TV program would your parents not let you watch? See, the thing was, I actually that's kind of a, a trick question. I was let to watch pretty much everything. That's awesome. I was over-televisionized as a child, which I think is why I don't really watch much TV these days. But goddamn, I watched it as a kid. Yeah. Match game among them. Um, I remember when that fall TV guide, TV guide would come, oh, the yes. thick one with the different covers, and like, I'm going to have to make my plan for what I'm going to watch, <laughs> when I'm going to watch it, and yeah, all of it. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, what would you want your final meal to be? 
Oh, well, see, that's so many choices to choose from. I mean, I I love everything from beef wellington and drinking bull shots to, you know, vegan and vegetarian cuisine. So I'll nice. frequent restaurants left and right. I eat everything. And frankly, I... It's funny because when I go to a restaurant, I will a lot of times order four different things and just eat them all. Like, rather than order dessert, I'll say, oh, I'll get the fish and chips after having the main entree, a steak or something like that. I like it. You break the rules. Yeah. Okay. What kind of a driver are you? A lousy one. Oh, I hate driving. But again, I grew up in Chicago, a city with good public transportation. Right. And I'm wonderful at driving on Nantucket, an island that has <laughs> no stoplights and three roundabouts. Right. But that's You're good with speed. a roundabout. I'm great with a roundabout. Okay. But not so great in L.A. What's your go-to karaoke song? Fame. Irene Cara's really? Fame. That's yes. very interesting. I became a Chicago legend singing Fame at Roscoe's Gong Show Croaky, hosted by Miss Memory Lane. Fantastic. Um, I have about a three-note range. Right. Me and Marlena Dietrich are like that in the singing skills department, but for some reason that song falls within the three notes that I can actually pull right. off. It's very, it's very cocky too. It's like, remember my name. It's exactly. Like, look at me. It's screaming, look at me. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Baby, I'm... look at me. Yes. And tell me what you see. <laughs> you ain't seen the best of me yet. Give me love, I'll make you forget the rest. I like that you bring it to a sultry place. You know, I like turning it into a torch song. <laughs> you turn fame into a torch. <laughs> you know. Um, do you have any souvenirs from Match Game? Did you get any stuff? Yes, I have a bunch of things. Well, I have all the photographs. Do you have any cards the of them answers? Yes, I got those. The ones that are illustrated in the book, uh, I got those from Dick Bartolo, who, dear sweet guy. Yeah. And uh, he managed to keep these, you know, 40-odd years later. And I have some of them and use them to illustrate the book, but I've got those framed. I've got... Oh, you've um, got them framed. I've got them framed. I've got a match game jacket. It's one of the... They used to give sweatshirts oh and t-shirts and jackets yeah. to the crew members and sometimes as, you know, the take-home prizes. And I got one of those. So I've always thought, oh, it's my... Next book signing, I should wear my yes. match game jacket. Yes. Or possibly at the next... At the mismatch match game, game, and we'll do another plug for the book. Exactly. That's amazing. That's in fit. February, right? Yes. It's slightly big on me, but that's yeah, perfectly it's fine. fine. Yeah, it's yeah, a jacket. Yeah. yeah, you can do it's whatever. It's big. It's baggy. It's cool. It's, exactly. It's, but you have cards. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And I have... Uh, I When Brett had passed away, I got a few things from her estate... Um, including a pair of her iconic sunglasses. Yes, she had those sort of oversized sunglasses. Exactly. The big, a I, certain kind of poncho fashion style kind of thing going on. I had said to her once, I jokingly said, oh, you and Jackie Onassis did the big sunglasses thing, you know, yeah. in the 70s. And she said, oh, no, I was doing it before that. She always just liked the big lenses. She yeah. would always wear men's sunglasses because they were big enough and they had that kind of wraparound effect. And she just liked the look of them. Interesting. Yeah. She was the dishiest, probably, of the celebrities. She was She was certainly forthcoming. Yeah. She was indeed. What was the story where you were like, oh, wow, that's dishy? Um, 
I don't know. She was just pretty honest about everything. One of my favorite stories, and it's a familiar story to everybody, um, is the time that Marsha Wallace got, you know, blanked on on Match Game with a great big oops because she decided to write a racy answer and she held up the card and all of a sudden the bells and whistles went off. Right. And all we see as the audience is this great big oops and the, the slide, you know. Yeah kind of blotting out the answer. But no, uh, Marsha told the story, but Brett liked tattling on her and had had a lot of fun with that. Right. Because of Do course, you remember what the actual answer was? Yes. Uh, the question was something like, unlucky Louie was unlucky because, you know, his blank ended up three inches shorter, whether because of cold or whatever. Right. I don't know. Something to that effect. So it was about the peen. Exactly. Okay. And Marsha had told me, you knew that that was what they wanted. Right. What the answer was. It was supposed to be penis, but how can I get around? I'll answer medically. So she wrote genitalia. <laughs> okay. Which she thought would be a medical Right, term, exactly. And held it up. And, of course, all was shocked <laughs> when all hell broke loose. And Iris Scutch came to her and said, right. you get one. You get one. <laughs> but you also write in the book about the little lingo things. You could say this, but not this. We say exactly. this, but not that. Exactly. So thorough what you've done um tell people how they can find out more about the book where they should buy it and all of that stuff the book well you can find it pretty much in any bookstore but it's on amazon.com it's on barnesnoble.com go into any bookstore and ask for match game 101 a backstage history of match game by a ashley hoff perfect and they can look it up in the Ingram catalog under the ISBN number or just using the author's name and the book title. It's a perfect it. gift for the TV lover in your life. The holidays are coming up. Yes, they sure are. Uh, final question. What have you learned? What's the takeaway from your journey with this book? Because you probably thought it was dead, dead, dead at times. Well, things- And then it would come alive again and come dead. Like, what did you learn from that whole ride? I mean... Things will happen when they are ready to happen, when you are ready for them to happen. And I guess I needed to wait for this period for the book to come out to be ready for it. But I think also overall, I learned the appreciation for this great show, these fabulous people that I've known all my life that I always wanted to meet. And lo and behold, I got to know them and hang out with them. You got to be... In the mix. I got to be Alice through the looking glass. Right. It was really great. And I think I just appreciated this rather maligned genre, game shows, that get slapped around all the time. Right. But I I really respect them. Yeah. So I I learned the gift of appreciation. I love it. Well, your love for it comes through in every page. So you should be very proud. People, everyone should pick up the book. It's so fun talking to you. And we'll see you next time we do the mismatch game, if not sooner. Thank you, Dennis. And we'll do another big plug. we got to get, you know, all those people there to love it. And thank you for your contribution. Yeah, I'm interviewed in the book. I have a few quotes. The funny thing is I went and looked at them and it was exactly the same shit I was going (laughs) to tell you today. Like I thought, these are my deep feelings about match game. Oh, I told him that 15 years ago. Anyway, um, just about how it made feeling like an adult, looking like an adult, seemed like so much fun. So, awesome. It's fun talking to you, Ashley. Um, congrats. Thank you. Bye! Thanks again to A. Ashley Hoff. Pick up his book, Match Game 101, for you or the Match Game lover in your life. It's a great holiday gift. All right, so this happened. It was Halloween. Um, I think last time I talked about doing a photo shoot as a zombie merman with my friends. Um, but then on actual Halloween night... 
I was part of a flash mob through some of my dance uh, friends. We did this great big flash mob. There were like a hundred of us at Warner Brothers for this private party. And we were zombies and we came out and did Thriller. And it was really fun. I made 50 bucks. You know, I've always got... Got to t- can't leave any dime on the table trying to piece together a, leave, a living. Um, but it was a really fun way to, to spend Halloween. And um, and the people seem to enjoy the thrillerness of it all. I know Michael Jackson is problematic, but fuck, thriller. I mean, what do we, what do we got? Without that, you just got Monster Mash for Flash Mobs at Halloween? I don't know. I'm torn. I don't know what to do. Somebody tell me how to be in the world. Um... And then later that week, I got to see Sarah Bareilles at the Hollywood Bowl with some friends. Um, she's delightful and sang really well and uh, had fun patter in, in between. That was super cool. And then just last week, I got to see a advanced screening of Bombshell, the movie about uh, sexual harassment at Fox News. You know, Roger Ailes and Gretchen Carlson and uh, Megyn Kelly. Charlize Theron uh, produced it, is one of the producers, and she plays Megyn Kelly. And she looks, I don't know what they did prosthetically to her, but she looks just like Megyn Kelly in, in the movie. And she was there for the Q&A. Anyway, I love the movie. I found it, like, so engrossing. I almost, like, wanted to get out of my chair. Like, I was just into it. Um, so I'm excited for people to see it before it's come out. Margot Robbie is kind of sensational in it. She She sort of breaks your heart, but also inspires you and... She does an awesome job, so keep an eye out for that. Oh, and Kidman, Kidman, Kidman. I have, I, I, I love Nicole Kidman. I think she's a national treasure. But I look back on my life sometimes. I look at a year of time, and maybe I got one project off the ground, or I made one thing sort of happen. In that time, Kidman's done ten movies and a miniseries. Like. I just, every time I go to the Arclight and there's a row of posters, there's always two new Kidman movies coming. And I, I love it. I can't get enough. But she does make me feel like a lazy fuck. So, there you go. Anyway, watch for it. It's going to be coming out, I think, near Christmas time. And I think it's terrific. So, that's enough for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! Bye!